There's a deadly disease spreading through Australia right now. Transported here from a foreign continent, it's already decimated industries and reshaped economies overseas. And it could do the same here, all while posing a massive threat to life in the country. But I'm not talking about the coronavirus pandemic. I'm talking about a plant disease pandemic that's tearing through the Australian landscape right now. We all know the name COVID-19, but we should also know the name Myrtle Rust. This deadly and destructive disease arrived long before COVID-19 did, and it's wreaking havoc. In this episode of Branch Out, we're going to take a look at just how devastating this plant pandemic could be, and the thrilling, cutting-edge science that is our best bet for saving our unique environment. In fact, it's the same science that will save us from the COVID-19 pandemic as well. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and all of that is coming up in this episode of Branch Out. So firstly, can you please help me out with how this pathogen is pronounced? Because I'll butcher it. Okay. In, in the English-speaking world, generally it's pronounced as Australopaxinia sidii. That's Dr. Ed Liu. He's a scientist at the new Australian Institute of Botanical Science, and he specialises in plant pathology. And he also heads up the plant clinic at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. It's commonly called myrtle rust, and, and rusts are pathogens of plants. A bit of terminology here. So... A pathogen is a bacterium, virus, or other microorganism that causes disease. So plant rusts are fungal pathogens. We're not talking about, you know, a rusty piece of metal because it looks like that. That's right. Myrtle rust, unlike some other pathogens, is pretty easy to spot in the Australian bush. Bright orange, yellow spores or, or, or patches, you know, from a distance against a, you know, a nice green uh, background of the leaf. You know, just to contrast itself, you know, it's striking. It, you know, it's, it's, it's visually striking. Though it might look pretty, myrtle rust is a killer. Now, as a pathogen, a rust infects a plant and rots the plant or colonizes the plant tissue by taking nutrients from, from the plants, thereby killing the host or causing damage to the host. Depending on the extent of it, your host plant can die from it. Sounds brutal, right? But that's its job. You see, myrtle rust originated in South America and in its natural environment there, it actually performs a pretty important function. In a natural balanced ecosystem, the, the, the fungus or the pathogen will basically decompose the host that's already dying or weakened. It's contributing to a very natural process of decomposing uh, plant materials back to basic elements uh, that's recycled through the soil and be taken up as uh, nutrients by other plants. Once it's introduced into an area that has not been previously exposed to this particular rust, it attacks a whole huge range of these kind of like a, um, innocent hosts, if you like. 
It uh, was first detected in New South Wales in 2010 and um, it spread really rapidly along the, the east coast of Australia after that. So within a couple of years, it was all the way up into North Queensland. It affects, I think we're up to 358 native species in um, Australia. So it, it has a huge impact. That's Dr Karen Somerville. She's a plant scientist from the new Australian Institute of Botanical Science. She's researching ways to successfully store and germinate seeds of species being attacked by myrtle rust at the Australian Plant Bank. It's a kind of insurance policy against their extinction in the wild. Now, the myrtle in myrtle rust comes from Myrtaceae. That's the plant family that serves as host to the fungal pathogen that causes myrtle rust. You see, in its South American home, there's limited Myrtaceae species, therefore limited hosts. But in Australia, 80% of Australian native trees belong to the Myrtaceae family. And it's just affected so many different species. Normally, um, a disease species in the plant world might affect a few species, but this is just having such a widespread impact on um, so many species within the Myrtaceae family. And some of them, it's really knocking down hard. So two species in particular, we've got um, Rhodomyrtus sidioides, which is the native guava, and Rhodamnia rubescens, which is the scrub turpentine. And those were both quite common before the rust arrived. And they've now been um, listed as critically endangered because they've been so badly affected in the wild. In the midst of our current corona health crisis, we could be tempted in our more cynical moments to say, so what if one or two plant species disappear? But the Australian biosphere hangs in a fine balance. And that's a balance we rely on. Just losing a species in itself is, is horrible. But the knock-on effect of this is that um, if you lose that species, its position in the ecosystem is going to be taken over by something else. In the case of the native guava, the most likely thing to take over its position is the weed lantana. And lantana is more flammable than the rhodomyrtus. So uh, lantana can also grow up trees and so it can act as a bit of a ladder for fire to start in the, the lower canopy and then head up into the upper canopy of the rainforest. So it's going to make the rainforests even more flammable than we saw in the drought situation um, earlier this year. So you've got that and you've also got the pollinators, there are more than 100 species of insects that have been associated with the native guava and um, those relationships between the insect pollinators and are going to be lost once the guava is lost. Rainforests are particularly vulnerable to myrtle rust because the pathogen thrives in wet and warm environments. Young plant shoots are also particularly susceptible. Following the bushfires at the start of the year, the country is now covered in young plants, just getting started. That's a perfect breeding ground for the deadly rust. We're starting to see the extent of the damage rust pathogens can cause here in Australia, but we really don't have to look that far to see the havoc it's already unleashed elsewhere. Sri Lanka, or Ceylon, as it was called under the British colony, uh, used to be the number one coffee producer. And then what happened is that um, there's this exotic pathogen um, called coffee rust, a, a bit like our myrtle rust here, somehow got introduced into Ceylon and started 
you know, destroying the, the coffee plantations to a point where the whole industry was destroyed. So to, to survive as a country, what uh, Ceylon did was to start a new industry and basically started planting tea. So until today, Sri Lanka, as it is now called, uh, became one of the you know, number one tea producer in the world. But that's as a result of a change uh, from coffee to tea due entirely to this coffee rust, a pathogen. Myrtle rust absolutely could cause that kind of economic damage here. The Matesi family includes some of our best exports. For example, tea tree, which is responsible for tea tree oil. That's an industry worth $35 million annually to Australia. Lemon myrtle oil sustains around 60 Australian businesses, producing 1,000 tonnes of leaves a year. The eucalyptus oil industry would be another casualty. But of course, there's an even more devastating consequence of the loss of eucalypts. So we, we know that there are 600 plus species of eucalyptus in Australia and koalas will eat or, or sit on a, less than 100 of them, of those species. In fact, they're, probably, they're really only interested in about 20 species total. Dr. Rebecca Johnson is Chief Scientist at the Smithsonian's National Museum of Natural History in Washington, D.C. And before that, she was Chief Scientist at the Australian Museum in Sydney. She's an expert when it comes to koalas. And so across the koala distribution, which goes right from North Queensland right round to Victoria and even through South Australia, there, there's very different eucalyptus species there, and so the koalas tend to be extremely locally adapted to their own trees, to even to literally a tree on one side of the road, even if the exact same species is across the other side of the road. In other words, koalas are super picky eaters. The loss of any of the few eucalypts that they do eat would be one more stress they're not in any position to withstand right now. Early settlers hunted koalas in their millions. Subsequent centuries have seen devastating habitat destruction and chlamydia is tearing through the remaining population. Then, of course, there were the bushfires and now myrtle rust. So it's really an extra layer that goes on top of it. Um, and it is a really, really important one to think about because there's only so many straws that you can pile onto, onto a camel before it, it uh, can't carry them anymore. This is the danger we face from this deadly plant disease pandemic spreading through Australia. The extinction of native Australian plants and animals, economic damage, increasing our risk of bushfires, and even more. So the question is, what are we doing about it? Coming up after the break, science to the rescue. COVID-19 is having a massive impact all over the world. While the responses of governments have varied to the extent that we've been able to battle this pandemic at all, it's due to the incredible hard work and collaboration of scientists. They're using cutting-edge technology to work out how to beat it. And it turns out that same technology is being used to save our threatened plant species from myrtle rust. Dr Jason Bragg is from the new Australian Institute of Botanical Science and he's based at the Royal Botanic Garden, Sydney. Now, his job title might surprise you. He's what's called 
a computational biologist. I guess as the name implies, it's it's someone who tries to make inferences about biology at, at all kinds of levels of biology using computers. We live in the age of information. There's been an explosion in our ability to generate data about the world around us, including biology. That's really exciting for scientists who are always on the lookout for more information. But there's so much these days that to utilise it fully, we use computers to help us sort and understand all that data. Jason actually started his career as an ecologist. And then during my doctorate, I started getting really interested in bacterial genomics and how the content of bacterial genomes related to, to where they live and what they can do. That's right, DNA. It's the building block of all life on the planet. It's the blueprint for making you and me, trees, koalas and everything else. And we're making incredible advances in how we understand and change that blueprint. It's the revolutionary face of modern science, and it's really helping when it comes to saving plants. The bottom line is that genetics are quite important to the conservation of endangered species. For those of you without a background in molecular biology, like me, here's a little refresher on DNA. We can think about the DNA in an organism, the, the genome of an organism, as a very long row, a very long string of letters. And it uses four letters, A, C, G, and T. And each of those is a, a nucleotide or a, or a chemical that's in the DNA. That's right, just four letters. But there's about 400 million base pairs in a unique sequence for some of the Mertaceae plant species and about 3 billion base pairs that expresses you. Just like us, plants pass down copies of their DNA to their offspring, an almost identical copy of their own, and there's usually very few errors. But over many generations, those errors start to accumulate. So this starts to become a very uh, handy way for us to look at how many differences there are in those sequences of two organisms to start to figure out how different they are genetically and to start being able to infer how long ago they shared a common ancestor. This becomes really important as plant populations shrink because genetic diversity in populations is imperative for the strength of a species. You see, with fewer plants, the risk of inbreeding increases. So if we're going to try to protect plants by reducing inbreeding, we, we can try to um, manage populations so as not to have too many very closely related plants in them. The other exciting side of genome sequencing, which is that process of working out just where those 400 million or 3 billion A's, G's, C's and T's all go, is finding out which genes are responsible for better coping with stresses like climate change or fighting off disease for plants. We collect seed, grow up seedlings, assay those seedlings to find out which ones are, are more or less susceptible to, um, to myrtle rust, then do lots and lots of um, genetic sequencing to try to find those positions in the genome where having a different, a different base, a different A, C, G or T is statistically associated with resistance or not. Hopefully it would also start to give us more insights about the kinds of genes that might be uh, important in, in mediating resistance to myrtle rust. These genetic insights can yield incredible advances. It's exactly what we're waiting for in the fight against COVID-19. 
But it's slow and painstaking work. So it's not like you see on uh, CSI Miami where you put in something into a computer <laughs> and it spits out an immediate answer, unfortunately. Um, it takes a couple of days. <laughs> That's Dr Rebecca Rocket. She's a virologist at the University of Sydney's Maria Bashir Institute for Infectious Diseases and Biosecurity at Westmead Hospital. She uses DNA sequencing to help trace and fight all sorts of deadly outbreaks like salmonella. And so obviously we want to know which rock melons, bean sprouts are causing people to have infections. And so we sequenced the, the salmonella genomes of the infected patients and then we match them to environmental samples that might have been collected from a range of fresh produce. And so that way we can say you definitely need to remove this item from Woolworths <laughs> um, and we can stop the outbreak. And she's doing the same kind of medical detective work now, tracing COVID-19 here in New South Wales. By sequencing the COVID-19 genome and looking for distinctive fingerprints of COVID-19 DNA amongst the people who've contracted it, Rebecca is helping trace the virus's movement through the community. It's so vital in understanding and slowing the spread. So the genome or the fingerprint has 30,000 characters, if you like. So anyone we call into a cluster has less than two characters that are different. So we have to know who's positive. We have to trace those people and then we have to isolate them. And I guess what we help with is the, the tracing and the isolation so really there's a lot of testing going on and that's to try and find every single person who's infected. The incredible testing drive that's happened around the country has generated an unprecedented amount of data on the virus. We've got more info on COVID-19 than on any of the other viruses that have been around for decades. Hopefully that data is going to be really powerful when we make, um, when they hopefully make a vaccine or they come up with some kind of treatment options. We can really look at that genome sequence and understand potentially how these these treatments are going to affect the genome. You know, unfortunately, when we make antibiotics, we've found that bacteria find these loopholes around them. So hopefully we can use this information and make, you know, a really, really good therapeutic option for treating COVID. This is the amazing potential of genome sequencing. It's even helping us understand and protect our furry friends. Dr. Rebecca Johnson, who we heard from earlier, was also the co-chief investigator of an Australian-led group who sequenced the genome of our unique and picky eater, the koala. So eucalyptus, if anyone, if you ever tried to chomp on it, um, it's it's pretty bitter, um, and in fact, it contains so many plant secondary metabolites that if we ate the volume of eucalyptus that koalas do, we would die. And so we thought this is quite interesting. There must be a, a secret in the genome that allows them to do this. So koalas, we found this one particular family of enzymes. The koalas had a gazillion more genes than, than any other genome we compared them to. And it, so it appears as though they have expanded these two particular sets of genes in, in this particular subfamily of enzymes, which gives them probably a super detoxification ability so that they can very rapidly metabolise the plant secondary metabolites. There was one gene, however, the cute gene, that Rebecca was pretty disappointed not to find. That would, that, that would be the, the, big, the, the big finding of the genome, if we could find the cute gene. Um, spoiler, we're still looking for that. <laughs> but <laughs> we did find lots of other things that were useful for koala conservation. 
science is putting our best foot forward in trying to protect and preserve both us and our natural environment using DNA technology. But there's still so much work to do, and the scientists behind this amazing research are only one part of a larger effort that we as a community have to make to best these challenges. Dr. Ed Liu says there's a lot you and I can do when we're out in the bush, for example. They need to be informed. Um, they need to know what are uh, some of these uh, dangerous diseases. They need to generally be, be clean. Once they've left a particular area, they need to clean their boots, need to clean their shoes, need to you know, brush off their, their, their hats and their, uh, you know, their jackets and clothing. For Dr. Karen Somerville, trying to protect plants from being wiped out by myrtle rust using seed banking and DNA research can be an up and down ride sometimes, but it's important to stay optimistic. It's uh, a little bit like the response to COVID-19, really. You sort of, you know, you're hopeful on some days and other days you think, oh, my God, how can we ever get over this? But um, I think in the end, we have enough people working on responding to the myrtle rust situation that we'll be able to save the species. But I think the environment may not look the same as it does now. Um, we may uh, lose some species in the wild, but I think we'll at least be able to stop them from going extinct completely. Thanks for listening to Branch Out. And a huge thank you to all of the incredibly passionate and knowledgeable guests who featured in today's episode. Next episode, we'll be looking at an even more dangerous subject, poisonous plants. It became known as the umbrella murder. And it was only on autopsy that they found a little pellet embedded in his leg. And there were still traces of a plant toxin called ricin in it. If you liked today's show, please hit subscribe and give Branch Out five stars and a positive review. It helps more people discover the surprising world of plants. I'm Vanessa Fuchs, and this episode was produced by Dan Butler. Dan Butler.